0: Hoping you're having a very pleasant Friday, welcome to this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry. With me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. Today we are wrapping up our very brief look at a book written by Gary C. Lawrence. He is a Mormon pollster. He's also the author of How Americans View Mormonism. This book is Mormons Believe What? Question mark exclamation point. The subtitle is Fact and Fiction About a Rising Religion. And as we've been explaining, no doubt this book was written to dispel some of the stereotypes some people may have regarding the history and teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 5, and again, this was not meant to be an exhaustive study of the book, but the reason we chose the chapters we did is because a lot of these arguments are arguments that we hear quite often on the streets, and in discussing the issue of Mormonism through email and such. So today we're looking at Mormons add to the Bible even though God said not to. And this is found in chapter 5 of his book.
1: He writes, I find it puzzling that some people want to close canon as if the Bible is the be-all and end-all of what God, in whom 88% of us believe, want us to learn, and that by reading it, one has finished school. We Mormons make a simple claim. God still speaks to his children through a prophet because there is much more knowledge he wants to give to help us with life's test. And then he goes on and he says this, the charge not to add anything to the Bible is extrapolated from a verse in the 22nd chapter of Revelation.
0: And that's 22.18, which is a common verse that I've unfortunately heard many Christians use. What does verse 18 say?
1: It says, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book.
0: And I think Mr. Lawrence is correct when he says that this is referring to the book of Revelation, and we have often cautioned people who use Revelation 22:18 as some type of a proof text that shows that the Book of Mormon should not be accepted as scripture or the Doctrine and Covenants or the Pearl of Great Price or really anything that Mormons feel adds to the written word. That's not a good verse to use. However, what I think Mr. Lawrence is failing to understand is that even though revelation 22:18 would not be the best verse to use there are other admonitions in the bible that i think give us a clear understanding of what god means by adding to his words for instance you have deuteronomy chapter 12 verse 32
1: it says see that you do all i command you do not add to it or
0: take away from it what is that saying don't put words in god's mouth that God never said. You see, that is really the major sin of false prophets. They will come claiming to speak on behalf of God, and they will add things that God never decreed. We also find the same type of admonition in Proverbs 30, verse 6. And I'm reading from the King James, since that's what Mormons use, "...add thou not into his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar." Folks, we just don't attribute to God things that God did not say. And unfortunately, that's what Joseph Smith did. So while Mr. Lawrence will argue that yes, God can speak to us today, the major question I think we need to ask is, how do we know it's really God speaking to the prophets of Mormonism, or even more directly, Joseph Smith the founder of the Mormon movement. Another
1: verse would be Deuteronomy 4.2, which says, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. And Bill, so much of what Joseph Smith taught and what LDS church leaders teach today is beyond what the Bible says and actually contradicts the Bible.
0: He goes on to say on page 32 of the book, Today's Bible is not even the same collection of scriptural books it once was. In the Bible's own pages are references to other books that were once accepted as scripture, but which have been lost. He includes these to be Jasher, Solomon, Wars of the Lord, Samuel, Gad, Nathan, Ahijah, Iddo, and the list goes on. He asks, if these lost books happen to turn up in an archaeological dig, under what stretched rationale could a don't-add-anything-to-the-Bible person refuse to accept them? The Bible is obviously not a once and final collection of all books that contains all the words the Lord gave to his people in ancient times.
1: And he's saying it's not just limited to the Old Testament, but also the New Testament, because he goes on on page 32 and says, If one found out that the Apostle Paul had written another letter to the Corinthians, besides the two we have in the Bible... Would that other letter be Scripture? Well, Paul actually did write a letter to the Corinthians before he wrote the one we call 1 Corinthians, as he reminds them in the fifth chapter of that book. So if that letter and the lost books would be accepted as holy writ if found today, why not then other inspired writings?
0: But what's the fatal flaw in his argument? I think it's right here where he says, in the Bible's own pages are references to other books that were once accepted as Scripture. Mr. Lawrence, where's your evidence for that?
1: That's what we call an argument from silence.
0: And he does that a lot in this book. I mean, I'm amazed at how many logical fallacies he uses in this book to try to make his position palatable. But when he says books that were once accepted as scripture, what evidence does he give for that? He gives nothing. Yes, the Bible does mention these books, but how do we assume just from its mere mention that these books were part of the scriptural canon used by the Jews in the Old Testament?
1: What he's trying to say is that there was the greatest conspiracy that there were books that were considered to be scripture and somebody went to all of the sources and took them away. And that just seems preposterous to me
0: there's so many questions that could be raised in this and unfortunately a lot of his readers probably wouldn't even think through a lot of these questions that really should be asked on page 33 he says when we mormons tell the world that there are additional scriptures the standard answer we hear is that god may have more that he could say but he has given us quote all we need to know We submit that the differing interpretations of the Bible are prima facie evidence that indeed mankind does not have all it needs to know. Now here's the problem that I have with that first paragraph. When he says, yes, people will admit God has the possibility he could add more, but we would argue he has given us all we need to know. Why would we draw that conclusion? Well, I think it would be because the Apostle John seems to draw that very same conclusion in John twenty-one twenty-five.
1: This is what John says. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written.
0: Now, no doubt John's using a little bit of hyperbole there, but the fact remains that John seemed to be perfectly content with what was available at that time. He doesn't seem to be in a panic that there's more that we should have recorded that Jesus said or more events that Jesus participated in that he did to make it complete. It seems that John is perfectly content to say, hey, look, what you have here is enough.
1: And then later on in 1 John 5.13, it says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. Now, John had every ability to add these other things. If he were a reputable disciple, he should have done that. But he apparently, as you say, had enough there for people to get the main gist of what the gospel
0: is about. Whenever I hear Mormons use the argument that God has spoken, to our prophet. The question I have to ask them is, how do I know Joseph Smith was a true prophet? You might assume as a Latter-day Saint that he was a prophet of God, but how did you come to that conclusion? Many of the Mormons that I talk to will tell me, well, I prayed about it, and God gave me a, a personal revelation that Joseph Smith was inspired by God to restore the true church back to the earth, to give us what they call the restored gospel. Isn't that a little bit dangerous considering that a lot of religious people in many belief systems throughout the world could probably draw that same kind of a conclusion based on what they believe regarding their own leaders sure. and their religious organization or belief system? Of course, John Owen, born in 1616, died in 1683. He was a 17th century theologian. John Owen said this If private revelations agree with Scripture, They are needless. If they disagree, they are false. That has been a premise that I have used throughout my Christian walk ever since I first read this quotation many years ago. Think about it. If private revelations agree with Scripture, why would you need them? It's concurring with what we already have. But if someone's revelations happen to disagree with what the Bible already declares shouldn't they also be classified as being false revelation? Because God is not going to contradict himself. Therein lies the problem, folks. We look at a lot of the things that Joseph Smith taught, and we see that they are in direct conflict to what God has already revealed. If they are in disagreement with what God has already revealed, then we as Christians cannot accept them as being true revelations.
1: And just because somebody like Paul wrote something down doesn't necessarily make it scripture. There was a process. It's called the canon and canonization, and the early church participated in that. This is what Edward Young says about this issue. He says, canonical books, in other words, are those books which are regarded as divinely inspired. The criterion of a book's canonicity, therefore, is its inspiration. If a book had been inspired of God, it is canonical, whether accepted by men as such or not. It is God and not man who determines whether a book is to belong to the canon. It is thus important to realize that God determined the canon via the process of inspiration. Man does not actually determine the canon. He only recognizes what God has already done. Canonization is essentially the process by which early Christians recognized the books that were
0: inspired of God. In this book, Gary Lawrence is going to then argue for the Book of Mormon. But of course, even to believe the Book of Mormon is Scripture is quite a leap of faith. It contains all the earmarks of what many would say is a 19th century novel. It includes a lot of anomalies. Yes, it does throw in a lot of King James Bible, which you would think that alone would expose it for the fraud it is. Why is God speaking in King James English? But yet, the God of Mormonism seems to keep speaking that way. Even in the Doctrine and Covenants and Revelations given to Joseph Smith, he's using these and thous. Why would God do that? That makes no sense. It looks like Joseph Smith is trying to give the Book of Mormon that air of Scripture by quoting the King James Bible, which many people at that time recognized. But there's a lot of problem areas with the Book of Mormon, and it certainly does disagree with the New Testament in many areas as well. His argumentation is lacking. And I would not look at this book as being one that I would say is that convincing when it comes to what Mormons believe.